You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bo's Nose Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. And now, here's Jay. Good afternoon, and welcome to another edition of the Bo's Nose Show. And I'm your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich, and we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon, where it's a pretty amazing day for December. You know, blue sky, the sun was out, my neighbor was out mowing their lawn a few minutes ago, um, you know, in December. <laughs> so, can't beat that with a stick. Must be global warming. Of course, last week when I was having to run the fireplace and we were all freezing to death, you know, that that's still global warming too. Everything's global warming. And we're going to talk about climate change, but that's not my first topic today on the Bose Nose Show. I'm going to jump into COVID big time. But I'll remind folks that this is a call-in show and I'll talk about anything, anything you want to call in and talk about just about. Uh, and it's 646-721-9887, and you have to press 1 so we know you want to talk on the show, not just listen, because people do call in to listen. Again, it's 646-721-9887, press 1 so Robin, my producer and call screener extraordinaire, can get you on the board as wanting to jump on the show and, and uh, put that that question mark up there so I can I'll, I'll bring you on and we'll have a conversation because conversations between people are a whole lot more interesting interesting than me uh, kind of going back and reviewing what happened in the board meetings or what's going on in the news because you hear enough of that but I do have a little bit of my own spin sometimes and part of my own spin is my background as an engineer which means I really hate it when people do bad math it drives me crazy. <laughs> and there was a post that has been going around Facebook lately here in Oregon that has some, it's not so much bad math, but bad use of, of, of data because they weren't paying attention when they put the post together. And basically it's a post that shows the total deaths in Oregon by year. And it goes back about five years listing that. And then it's got the 2020 year to date total but what it has next to it is the run date for the data, which was December 1st. What the whoever originally put this post up did not understand. You know, and of course they they put something, and it, this has been fact checked and all that stuff. It's like what they didn't do was carefully go back and look at the actual data, because if you go to that 2020 year-to-date data or deaths by age group and county of residents, of Oregon residents, is put out by OHA. And I actually put a link up on my Facebook page uh, and my commissioner's Facebook page um, to where you can get to that data. It does say run date December 1st, 2020, but that isn't mean the data was up to December 1st. If you look at the line right above that, because that run date's in parentheses, Right above it says 2020 year to date. Right behind that says January through October. So the actual data only goes through October 31st, not December 1st. So when you look at the number of deaths up to that point, you're only talking about 10 months worth of data, not 11 like the original post makes you believe. And if and it makes a big difference because if you do the math correctly, take that 10 months worth of death numbers and divide it by 10, then multiply it by 12 to project out what the full year of 2020 total deaths is going to be, you get a number of 38,797. Well, 
Last year, in 2019, our total deaths were 37,397. And Oregon's been growing population-wise by about 1% a year. So you could expect the number of deaths to go up by about 1%. Well, that 38,797 is a little over 1,000 more than 1% growth of 2019's total deaths. So that's an excess number of deaths of about uh, just over 1,000. Now they're reporting right now, OHA, that the total deaths from COVID are just over 1,000. I would argue that's probably overreported um, to some degree, but you can't ignore the math, if you do it correctly, that we are going to have somewhere around a 2.6 to 2.7 increase in total deaths over our norm in Oregon this year, which is a significant enough increase that there has to be a cause behind it. That's not just a, a variance in, in, the, in the death you know, rate in our population. Um, you know, a little bit of that might be attributed to our aging demographic, but not much seeing our life expectancies are also increasing. Um, but what, what you're seeing there is a definite sign that something was different in 2020. And that something that was different is COVID-19, and, and, it, and it has caused excess deaths. Now, whether or not that 2.6% increase was worth the cost, and one of the reasons why I think the 1,000 deaths is, a little, uh, is overprojected is because they just about everything's being assigned COVID as a death cause, yet I do know that we're seeing an increase also in suicide deaths and we're seeing an increase in drug overdose deaths. So I think some of that, you know, a little, that's not enough, not to come close to a thousand. I mean, we're talking about a hundred or 200 additional deaths between those two categories. Um, there's still a significant increase in our total death rate that is, you can't explain away other than COVID. So, Yes, we're seeing excess, extra deaths due to COVID, so it is a serious disease. But the question is, the cost economically, psychologically, and sociologically to our society of the steps we've taken to prevent it from being worse, how much of those costs been excessive and, and driven by bad science? You know, when we first started in this COVID thing, the shutdown, you know, we had, we had no idea what the mortality rate was going to be like, how, how contagious this was, how it was even being transferred at, at some point. So some of the shutdown could be justified back in February or March. But by the time we're getting around to this surge, and we actually have nine months worth of data on contact tracing and understanding transmission better and better. We're not driving, the, the state of Oregon is not driving their shutdowns based on the transmission data at all. It's very unscientific. We're seeing, yeah, I haven't yet seen somebody put forward an outbreak tied to a fitness center or gym yet we shut those down. We've seen a tiny fraction of cases tied to restaurants, and of those, it's mostly been employees that caught it outside of work. And they got, you know, because they work in restaurants, they were subject, you know, they were a group that probably got tested more than others, and, and were under, you know, the employers were, were watching out for sick employees, whatever. That's how they showed up. No customers that I know of of restaurants have come up with COVID by restaurant transmission. So we shut down restaurants knowing that one of the places we have positive and we know is one of our largest sources of transmission is in-home gatherings. So you shut down restaurants and then people turn to gathering in their homes where you know transmissions are happening. So how is that scientifically driven? You know, so I, as an engineer that 
two things that, that bother me is when people misuse math and misuse data, and when people don't use data that's obviously right there in front of them to make decisions. I mean, because as an engineer, that's, you know, that's what you do. You go back and look at, you know, all the bridges that failed, how did they fail? Why did they fail? What was the method of failure? All that, you know, so you know how to build something that won't fail. You know, and you look at data and, and you look at things like loading and what's the trends and, and, you know, and traffic and size of trucks and axle loads and everything else. And, and you design your bridges around all that, you know, and you look at data in an accurate way. It just seems like with COVID, people want to go to extremes on both sides. There are folks that, you know, are chicken little, you know, I have a fellow commissioner that wants us to, you know, put in county law mandates and, and restrictions on home gatherings and everything else and try and police them at the county level with what resources, I have no idea. We can barely keep up with our contact tracing, <clears throat> let alone have some kind of mask police running around to folks that are completely in denial that this is even a serious disease and want to monkey around with, with because they don't understand the difference between when data was run versus the actual period the data was for. Because you know, death data lags. It's, it's not as bad as crime data from the FBI. Good Lord, the FBI's crime data is two years behind reporting. You know, the, the most recent year you can get crime statistics by, by city is 2018. Um, at least with death data, we're only a month and a half or so behind. And part of that is, uh, you know, the counties report to the state. The counties have to wait for their coroners um, and medical examiners to certify deaths and cause of death, which takes time. So if somebody dies on the 31st, it might be November 15th before you get a final death certificate or even later. So you, you, you see that month to month and a half lag of, of data for, for deaths because it takes that time to roll, roll that all up to the state level. So a, a run date of December 1st is not going to have data right up to December 1st. It's going to be somewhere back in the past to get accurate data for the entire state. And in this case, it was the end of October. But it was being put out on Facebook like it was into December. And here we were at 32,000 deaths. And last year, we were at 37,000 deaths. How are we going to have 5,000 deaths in one month? You know, it made it look like we were, you know, really going to have less deaths this year. No. If you do the math correctly, and you, you do that, you know, divide by 10 times 12, we're actually going to see a little over 1,000 deaths above what you would expect of a 1% growth rate from last year's death rate. So um, that's, you know, my, my initial reaction to some of the COVID news you know, and I talked about it a little last week. It just, I wish that we would make decisions based on science. You know, you hear that all the time. Yeah, I should be making decisions based on science. That was the big knock against the Trump administration. They weren't using science. You know, here we have nine months of data on where transmissions are happening, and the state's completely ignoring that causing extreme economic harm to two particular industries that were really hurt by the original shutdowns because a lot of them were clamped, were still shut down at, you know, level two, you know, it, as people moved into level one, level two, level three reopening. You remember those? And then we got into being on a watch list and now we're at, at, at you know, different risk levels. Um, it's like that, the, the state can't decide how to do it so they keep renaming how they're doing it so they can look like they're doing something which brings me around to this whole thing of you know there's covid relief bills floating around and different things that people want to have happen to help people out uh, that are suffering from the economic repercussions of 
the government reactions to trying to, to stop the, and contain COVID, we are getting to the point where trying to get us to accept that the government is, you have to listen to everything they say because it's, quote, an emergency, and then the government's going to be the one that rescues us from the side effects of what they're doing to fix the emergency. Hmm. Excuse me as I wet my whistle for a second there. Um, lemon ginger tea. <laughs> Keeps the throat clear. So uh, it, it really is interesting watching this, um, you know, the government, you know, of certain states, not all of them, you know, South Dakota, Florida, and a few others are notable exceptions. <laughs> West Coast and Northeast, hair on fire. Oh, my God, we have to shut everything down because, you know, this is going to overwhelm our hospitals, which it hasn't yet here in Oregon, particularly in Lane County. We still have capacity. Um, but it's like, where's the moderation in, in the messaging? And when you look at state by state, the ones that aren't restricting versus the ones that are, there really isn't a very large difference if you compare states with similar um, urbanization demographics. You can't really compare South Dakota with California, um, you know, because they're just not the same similar states. Um, but, you know, Florida and California are fairly comparable, and really you're not seeing a big difference between their their case growth or infection rates and, and a lot of other things, and they've taken completely different paths on restrictions. So are the restrictions being done well or right? I would argue not really, because there's really such a small difference in the data between this, those kinds of states. Um, you know, it's really kind of interesting to watch this. So they're trying to train us that if the government says, do this because it's an emergency, and I, and I as the executive branch have the power to create new rules and laws, which is a fascinating thing to watch this, this new executive power, you know, that everyone complained about when GW um, decided, you know, George W. Bush decided to use executive orders. And then, you know, when Obama got in and he went wild with executive orders and no one was saying a word. And then when Trump starts using them, of course, then they become bad again. Um, but now that, you know, these, these, uh, West Coast progressive governors are using executive order to create law. No one seems to be saying anything about that misuse of power. In addition to that, they're just kind of like expecting people to adhere to these edicts. Fortunately, you know, there are some people out there kind of fighting back. Um, I feel sorry for them because they really have to have their backs pressed against the wall because they knew they were going to become a target. And uh, Trudy's over there in Springfield, you know, painted the target on them just like that hairdresser in the first shutdown up in Salem painted the target on themselves. And the state's going to try and make an example out of them. It's like the gym owner up in the Salem area uh, that they, they find $90,000. Um, you know, Trudy's there you know, took away their liquor license. They took, they're trying to take away the, the video lottery machines. They're, you know, threatening to close her down and everything else. Um, it's interesting to see the support that they're getting from the community uh, to stay open. Um, but even I've heard that uh, um, one of the food delivery services has stopped going there, you know, and won't pick up and orders for there. And, and it, you know, that just, it, that to me seems like that's a private business now. You know, what, what, you know, you're, you're denying some of your customer base there. It's never a good thing as a business to ever get into involved with politics because it eventually will hurt you. But um, they're getting us conditioned 
to take whatever they tell us and 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 you know accept it and at the same time they're getting us conditioned that the government's going to be the one that, that rescues us from all this you know extended unemployment benefits um you know uh, prohibitions on on folks being thrown out of their their apartments or houses and uh foreclosures um you know all all this government action that's supposed to save us um you know you know these grants and loans that are supposed to go out to businesses to keep them afloat you know twenty five thousand dollars you know i don't know you know if it they have any idea what it takes to, you know, cash flows wise to keep a, a restaurant going, but 25,000 doesn't go very far um, for a restaurant. Yeah. It, it's just, and, but they're, they're asking us to accept that. And it seems like they keep asking us to accept government is the answer over and over and over again. You know, yesterday at the board meeting and this, and this, it seems like it was sort of a concerted effort. And I kind of wonder if one of my outgoing commissioners uh, kind of got these people to come so he could make the recommendation that we have a work session on this because he was, you know, post their public comment. And this has been his style to get somebody to come to public comment. And then he'll ask for a work session based on what people came to public comment for. <laughs> it's an interesting method of operating hasn't been effective as a legislator because it, it, it rarely seems to, to end up uh, in actual county code. But a bunch of people came and, you know, came, I should say, came to our virtual meeting to uh, give public comment to ask the county to ban a consumer product. Mind you, Lane County doesn't have any county bans on consumer products period none at all you know we don't we don't ban anything we follow you know the state has some bans that we follow uh, you know on certain drugs and, and various you know items there's no county ban on any consumer product but they're asking us to ban a certain style of packaging and 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 particularly in food service polystyrene Styrofoam is the is the trade name for it. Polystyrene is the chemical name. Expanded polystyrene, uh, you know, and I pointed out that you know it didn't take government action to get organic produce in the grocery stores. You know what happened was consumers started you know a couple grocery stores you know opened up that were organic stores. And, and some of them were small local ones, and the chain started. And because there started to be demand for it, and people were looking for it, some of the chains started putting in a few organic produce products. Next thing you know, there's a whole organic section in just about every major grocery chain in this country. In fact, now some of the grocery stores even have whole health food natural sections where it's not just produce, it's cereal, it's, you know, soda pop even that's, quote, natural. Uh, so, you know, it, it, the consumer drove that. There was no government actions behind it, no mandates. Why can't the consumers start saying, I don't want, you know, when I come to pick up my food and it's in polystyrene, say, you know, can you package this in something else? I don't like polystyrene. Um, you know, can I have? Is there when you call in to order your food, say I would like my food not to be packaged in polystyrene. You know, if if that's the consumer demand, that's the direction business will go because they want your business. It's called the invisible hand of capitalism. It works. No government intervention. So, you know, we see this, we're, we're supposed to control consumer choices through government. We're going to, you know, control, you know, 
the economy through the government and, and you know, how, how whether it's going up or down and trying to, to fix recessions with, with government programs. And we're going to control our climate with government. But before I get into controlling the climate with the government, I just want to go back and remind folks again that we are a call-in show. And uh, you can talk to us anytime here at the Bose Nose Show at 646-721-9887. Just press 1 so we know you want to get in on the show instead of just listen. Again, that's 646-721-9887. And just press 1 so Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, knows you want to get in on the conversation. But before I jump into climate, I want to go back to COVID for a minute because Robin got a chance to listen to um, an interview with Trudy this morning that I missed because I was busy um, doing other things this morning. It's trash day here at the Bozovich household, and I have to get the trash out sometimes. Because <laughs> that's, that's one of the things that's my job is, as, as my co-owner of my wife's business, you know, even though I'm 50% owner and the secretary treasurer of the corporation, I take the trash out from the business every Wednesday along with the house trash. Um, and if I don't get that done, it doesn't go out. So that's what I was doing this morning when the, when the interview came on. Um, so Robin, tell me a little bit about, you know, Trudy and what she had to say in this interview and, and just what the state's trying to do to her. Okay. I got a little bit of information. I also have a, a comment to one of your things that yeah. you mentioned. You don't need to see his identification. We don't need to see his identification. These aren't the droids you're looking for. These aren't the droids we're looking for. He can go about his business. Yeah. Don't ask questions, just comply. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to kind of quote from the uh, there's a GoFundMe page for Along Came Trudy that kind of explains a little bit about what happened. <clears throat> and um, basically on December 4th, OSHA came into the cafe and served a citation stating that a $500 fine will be implemented every day that she remains open. Her liquor license was suspended and her lottery contract was revoked. If she complies and closes her doors to the community she serves, she'll have to close her doors permanently. So Trudy is wanting to stay open. And her GoFundMe page is, uh, um, well, you can do a, a search for it. Right now they've raised $1,600 and their, their goal is 8000 uh, But she believes that it's, uh, I think it was, I can't remember which amendment, that uh, the right for commerce um, that she's Citing under, but a lot of people are standing up for her, and others are, of course, thinking the opposite, thinking that you're you want to kill her or kill. You know, if you don't wear a mask, you're going to kill the society. That type of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I, you know, I liked your explanation for why toilet paper got in short supply so fast. Um, you know, because every time somebody sneezes or coughs in in, in public. Uh, Everybody has to run to the to the restroom. <laughs> yeah. But to uh, kind of add to that, I mean, I was basically paraphrasing what was on the wake-up call this morning uh, when she was interviewed, is that according to the National Restaurant Association, that over 100,000 restaurants um, closed six months into the pandemic, and they're estimating about 40% of them will not come back. And yeah. Very large numbers, uh, nearly 3 million employees are still out of work, and the industry is on track to lose about $240 billion in sales this year, thanks to the uh, shutdowns. Yeah, and, you know, I, I managed restaurants all through college. It was how I worked my way through college, because um, you could work nights managing restaurants and go to school during the day. Uh, was <clears throat> one of those balancing acts that you do trying to um, keep keep bologna and and, and uh, craft mac and cheese and uh, top ramen in, in your apartment <laughs> with your three other roommates <laughs> uh, you know, as you're going to college. Uh, so 
you know, it, it restaurant is 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 a tough business to to make make work and cash flow is there's a lot large cash flow, but a small margin. You know, they don't operate on large margins. And they are already hurting in a lot of states that have chosen to arbitrarily raise the minimum wage. You know, another unintended consequence of government. And and you saw in areas that went way overboard, like Seattle, where they jumped that to that $15 minimum wage, a lot of restaurants went out of work just with that. Now you add on in Oregon that we've had this gradually increasing minimum wage, and now you throw in the shutdowns on that, and I don't know how the restaurant industry is going to survive this in Oregon. No, <clears throat> anyways, we're going to end up with nothing but national chains. Right. You know the the, the local good food <clears throat> is going to go away, and we're going to end up with you know Red Robin and uh, you know TGI Fridays and you know Applebee's and and you know. Places that, frankly, you know, I don't want to go eat because most of their entrees come in frozen and are just, you know, basically reheated, not not cooked at the restaurant. They're prepped somewhere else, thousand, you know, could be a thousand miles away and shipped in bulk. Yeah. Well, what you're going to see is with the forced increase in minimum wage is that in order to comply, the companies will raise the minimum wage, but they'll cut hours. So, yeah, yeah you're making $15 an hour. <clears throat> but well, one of the things you're also seeing is the cost of living in the states that have done that is is going through the roof. Prices are going up, um, and in Oregon, it's not just the minimum wage. We're also seeing the corporate activities tax that's buried in prices now, driving uh, inflation in this state. To where you know, by most accounting, it takes about one and a half times the amount of income to live comfortably in Oregon as it does in say Tennessee. You know, Tennessee is not a bad state, Nashville, Knoxville, Chattanooga, Memphis, you know, it's, it's not like it's, it's a, some backwater um, state, you know, it, it's, you know, one and a half times just the cost of living here in, the, in this state, and you kind of wonder why. <clears throat> well, we also have, uh, as you pointed out in last week's show, um, we got a new tax, city tax, starting first of next month. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's going to be fascinating because I'm already in a little bit of a battle with, with uh, the city about whether or not that tax can apply to me because I am going to move my office outside of the city limits uh, and operate from uh, out here in beautiful downtown Elmira. And I think the city is going to try and claim that because um, the county is located in the city, um, they're going to try and charge me that tax. And I think we're going to end up in court. <laughs> yeah. Well, you just have to tell them the city is a city, the county is in the county. You know, you guys enacted that tax, uh, you know, without a vote of the people and, and without my say so because I have nobody I can vote for that's a city councilor because I live out here in beautiful downtown Elmira, not in the city of Eugene. Um, and I conduct almost all of my business outside of the city of Eugene as, as a commissioner. My, my constituents, um, 50,000 of my 70,000 constituents are not city residents. You know, so I spend most of my time meeting with them and dealing with them from outside city limits. And, and I you know, do my email from out here. I do my Zoom meetings from out here. I do my telephone calls from out here to, as a commissioner. The only time I really end up inside the city limits is the rare occasion where I have to meet in that location and and. Right now, even if you know they lift the COVID restrictions and we start having public meetings again, it's only about 15 hours in a month, and I tend to work 60-hour weeks as a commissioner, so um, it's not going to be a very large percentage. So we're going to we're going to have a little battle between the city and I about whether or not I pay that income tax. 
Yeah, what Jay's referring to is the public safety tax, whether you work or live in the city of Eugene, you're subject to the tax. Yep. And it, and it was one of those ones where they never asked the county or talked to their, their, their partners at the county whether it was a good idea to implement. They just decided to do it with a, not a lot of warning. But, of course, it's one of those, quote, temporary taxes and has a sunset on it, you know. Yeah, unlike the uh, greenhouse tax, the gas yeah. tax that's going to be coming through, which can be, what, up to 70 cents per gallon increase? Yeah, yeah, if they pass the the, yeah, the state's, you know, cap trade and, and tax bill. But more, more, more of, a, of, a, of a limit in tax. Yeah. And Jay and I were talking pre-show, speaking of taxes, is that they're asking businesses to shut down or to go minimum capacity. A lot of people are out of work. Some of them still haven't got their employment checks. And my comment was, well, shouldn't government have skin in the game, too, and maybe suspend some of the taxes temporarily? Uh, But, Robin, that makes too much sense. Don't you know governments to answer everything? You can't take taxes away from the government because how are they going to, you know, provide us all this help to repair the damage that they did in the first place? I, I'm sorry, I, I totally forgot. Um, I forgot my place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you're just a under, you know, a, a, a mere citizen. The yeah. overboard, you know, um, elite government class will take care of you. Yes. I I should I should need to be careful not to go against the uh the norm or Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we'll have somebody pounding on our doors and threatening us with five thousand five hundred dollar a day uh fines and taking away our liquor and and, and gambling. Ah <laughs> uh, yes. Well you know it it, it it kills me. Liquor stores have stayed open this entire time. Of course, their franchises bought from the state to sell state-owned liquor at state-regulated prices that the state profits from 105%. Oh. Markup. Interesting. Hmm. Interesting. No. Yeah. Yeah, and the pot stores never got closed. Hmm. Do the pot stores pay a, a healthy tax to the state? Yeah. And convenience stores that sell cigarettes. Does cigarette tax go to the state? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Is that why the federal government is thinking about being provided income to the state? Yeah. <laughs> you could still buy a lottery ticket, but you couldn't, you know, go in a restaurant or work out. Yeah. Yeah. And what happens um, with uh, gymnasiums or gyms? That one that's being fined ninety thousand dollars, and and this restaurant. What happens if they don't pay those fines? I don't know. It you know it's going to take a long time for some of this stuff to get sorted out by the courts. Probably well after we we've got the vaccine distributed and we're up to herd immunity sometime next summer. Um, but my, you know, the problem is, is they've got to get it away from the state courts here that are so controlled by our current governor, um, and get it into a federal court, um, where they actually may be able to get it up into, uh, the Supreme court to, to deal with some of the, um, separation of powers issues, the creation of law, the violation of federal rights, um, that have come about by some of the restrictions. Uh, you know, we already had a, a, a Supreme Court case that basically told the governor of New York he could not restrict religious activities because they are protected under the First Amendment. Well, wow. I think we're yeah. eating a uh, religious activity. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I, it, hey, you could make a lot, a lot of more arguments about that than some of the other things, you know, because if you remember at one point, you know, that people were arguing that pot was a religious activity when it was ill, before it was made illegal. But, you know, I will say at least the federal government got partway towards legalizing pot. You know, I'm one of these people that wants to maximize freedom and liberty. 
Um, and, you know, unlike the folks that want us to, to use government to do things like, you know, take away your choice of how you get your carry out packaged, um, I'm, I'm willing to accept the fact that some people want to smoke pot. I don't but I don't think it should be illegal for them to do so and something that the federal government should be making illegal. Like banning straws. Yeah. 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 I mean, just some of this stuff is just, it's like, where, where does it end? And if we're willing to accept that, where does it end? Of course, they don't say that that picture of that turtle with a straw stuck up his nose was actually the turtle was uh, doing a little bit of drugs. <laughs> But speaking of mandatory, nice little segue here, mandatory vaccinations. Um, can employers uh, mandate that to their employees? Well, according to the Bureau of Labor, the answer is yes. Yeah, um, it's no, probably no different than mandating um, a lot of different other safety rules for the employees. Um, you know, you, you can't test positive for drugs or alcohol if you're a commercial truck driver. And so they're mandating, you know, that you not use within a certain period of time before driving. Um, yeah, there's, there, there's certain mandates that are tied to safety and health that um, employers are allowed to use. And I can imagine, you know, it's pretty easy to make that tie if you're a nursing home operator and you want all of your employees that come in contact with patients and come in contact with other employees that come in contact with patients to all be vaccinated. Um, and the part about that is that's a private entity asking employees that are, that don't have to work there. You have, you know, that's the thing I, I, I you know, tell people constantly, you do not have to work for an employer. It's a choice, and it's a contract between you and that employer for your time and skill. And they, and that there's a compensation that comes with that and conditions around that employment. And it's a private contract between private entities. Where it gets to be a problem is if the government decides to mandate something. Like if somehow or another you can't get past a TSA screening without a card that says you've been vaccinated, I have a problem with that. Now, if the airline and at the ticket counter, the airline wants you to have a vaccination card, as a private business, they can do that. Your customer, there's a contract between you for the, you know, for that flight and part of their conditions of that contract is that you have that vaccination card. That's, you know, and Thing is, is they may piss off and lose, you know, 25% of their customer base that doesn't want to get vaccinated. And there may be an airline, another airline that's willing to fly people without a vaccination card to get starts getting that business. That's how capitalism works. The invisible hand, <laughs> you know, and just like that with employers, if you, you know, if your employer is requiring you to get vaccinated, go find an employer that doesn't require it. And if you can't find one, that might be telling you something. <laughs> but um, as long as it's a private, between private parties, that requirement's part of a contractual agreement, whether it's a contract for your labor or a contract for consumer goods or services, I have no problem with it. When it becomes a government mandate, I have a problem with that. You know, because at that point, you're mandating somebody accept a medical procedure. And, and, you know, we can get into, you know, certain societies that require certain medical procedures of young girls and how we think that's so vile. Or at one point, you know, things that were happening, you know, in, in the, in, you know, when eugenics was, was popular and, you know, they were sterilizing certain people you know, against their will because they had certain, you know, certain traits or certain characteristics. Um, yeah, that, 
if, when you get into mandating medical procedures, it's a slippery slope. If you can mandate a vaccine, what else can you mandate? Government should not be able to mandate anything that requires you to consent to a medical procedure. You know, that's an individual right, you know, to say no. Private parties in contractual relationships, you know, you can either come to an agreement in the contract or you can choose not to be agree to the contract and and separate ways. And that, that comes as a customer of a private business or as a as an employee. You know, it's, it's just as simple as that. So my view of vaccines is, you know, I'm fine if a private, you know, company wants to require either employees or, or customers to have that vaccine. Where I have a problem is when it starts getting to be the government. You can, I could, I could even make an argument that this, you know, the vaccine requirements to attend public school is, a, is, is troubling to me. But then, of course, public school is troubling to me in some ways anyways. Um, you know, it, it's something that was, was initiated at one point um, to try and find a way to get children off the streets and, and allow um, wages to increase uh, in, in, in the Industrial Revolution to get the children out of the, out of the, uh, <laughs> the industries that they could pay pennies. But that's a whole long story. Uh, we don't need to get into the history of public schools and why they why they exist in this country at all. Uh, you know, if, if it were up to me, everything would be some kind of charter system where the government contracted with people to provide schooling, not governments actually providing that schooling. And then there would be full school school choice, and the the money would follow the student, and the parents would have the choice of where the student goes to school not the government. And in that way, you could enroll your kids maybe in a school that doesn't require vaccines because there would be choice. Speaking of choice real quick here, I want to just throw in Canada. I was thinking about travel restrictions and that they would have a proof of vaccination card to pe- for people that receive the uh, uh, immunization. What's your thoughts on that? Um, you know, when you talk about border and border security and, and public health of, of your society, there is some um, justification at that point. One, you're not talking about citizens that have right under, uh, rights under your constitution. You're talking about visitors. Um, and if the U.S. chose to do something similar, uh, I wouldn't have major objections to it. We, we do something fairly similar now. If you walk in, into customs from you know an international flight and you are flushed and sweating with fever you're going to be sent to a room somewhere and not allowed to go past the customs folks <laughs> and, and enter you know, you know go through immigration and, and get into the country um, right. when you're sick uh, likewise there's you know from people coming from certain countries we ask them to have immu- certain immunizations to enter our country uh, because they could be carrying a, a disease we've eradicated in this country, and we don't want to have it brought in. Um, so I, you know, there is some justification there because you're protecting you're protecting the citizenry that has rights, and one of those rights is not to be infected by somebody that's a non-citizen entering the country. And what about state to state, or just the idea of a? Of a card to prove that you travel options are not constitutional. Well, don't let that get in the way. Yeah, yeah. No, that that's gonna that's gonna be one that that, that you know somebody if a state tries to do that, that's gonna be something that's gonna end up in front of the Supreme Court. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, they could probably say though that if you don't have a car, you can't get a student loan, or you can't get a driver's license, or. Well, that you know, that gets to the point of why in the world is the government involved in student loans? <laughs> yeah, it's just you know, it, it we we you trap you know, it gets back to my initial point of, of everybody's looking, you know, the, the the government's trying to get us to to continually look at government as as the provider of all, 
and there's a certain amount of people that want them to be the provider of all and are promoting that. We need to resist that urge because when you get the government involved, it screws things up. And student loans is a, one of the greatest examples of how government action is totally screwed up the cost of college. At one point, you used to have to go to get a student loan to a private bank. And one of the things the bank asked, like, what were your grades? What were your SATs? What are you planning on taking when you get to college? Because we want to know if you're going to be able to pay this thing back. <laughs> well, you know, the government stepped in and started guaranteeing student loans, and basically now it's become come one, come all, you can get a student loan. They no longer really verify, you know, that you're going to be able to complete your degree by looking at your existing scholastic history. They're no longer looking at whether your degree is going to be in something that's going to get a job that will enable you to pay back that loan. And the fact that these government-provided loans have allowed colleges to increase tuition at over twice the rate of inflation over the last 30 years. And, and you know, the salaries for professors and college uh, employees has just gone through the roof. At the same time, a lot of these, especially some of these private colleges, have endowments that if they tap those endowments, they could pay everybody's tuition free and never spend down. the. They could do it with the interest they're earning on some of these endowments. Harvard, for example, has an endowment large enough they could probably pay every Harvard student's tuition in perpetuity with the interest on their endowment. But they're charging outrageous tuition because there's these loan programs that'll pay it. You know, I, it, I don't fault them. It's you know how they're making money and hanging on to you know and growing their endowments even greater, giving them more and more power, and allows them to offer degrees that have no economic value post college. You know and and you know have kids come out with huge debt because the cost of college has exploded. I mean, I was able to work in a restaurant part-time as a manager and go to college part-time and pay rent on a, on an apartment, pay my tuition because I was, you know, in state and it was, it was a reasonable tuition and never take out a loan back in the late seventies, early eighties. Nowadays, that would be impossible because tuition's so damn expensive because government got involved in making those loans. And now they're looking for government to forgive everybody's loans. I mean, I'm sorry, but was I there the day you decided to sign that loan with, the, with that, you know, for that college? Why am I, you know, paying federal taxes to pay off your student loan? I didn't make that decision. You didn't ask me whether it was a good idea. You know, I, I, you know, not to pick on student loans, but that's just one example of government gone crazy and what it's done to the actual college situation. And the quality of the actual college educations has actually gone down during that period. Yeah, don't get me started on that one. Yeah. The, the ability of, of students to do math and to do, you know, basic math, balance a checkbook, write a paragraph, <laughs> yeah, has gone down uh, over that time. You know how many students, um, when I went to college, couldn't read an analog clock? Yeah. Yeah, I believe it. But uh, we, we digress here. We never did get into climate change here on the Bose Nose Show today, which I, I really did want to get into because yesterday we talked about our now new Lane County um, inventory of greenhouse gas emissions, uh, you know, specific to Lane County, which we could have just carbon copied some other county in the Pacific Northwest because it, you know, there's really no difference in this area where we're all supplied with BPA electricity it's hydro generated, so there's a very low carbon footprint on electricity in the Pacific Northwest. 
So lo and behold, the largest sector contributing, uh, quote, greenhouse gas emissions in Lane County is the transportation sector, which would be the same for Marion County, for Lynn County, Benton County, uh, Multnomah County, uh, Snohomish County, uh, you know, <laughs> you name the county that gets BPA electricity, and it looks almost exactly the same. But we paid probably $100,000 to a, to a consultant to come out with this inventory, um, and, and I don't know what we're going to do with it, uh, you know, and we'll get into that probably next week a little bit on the Bose Nose Show because we're running a little short on time. Only got about four minutes left here. Again, I remind folks, though, we, we're internet radio, so we can go over. If you still want to call in at 646-721-9887, just press 1 if you want to get it on the show. Again, that's 646-721-9887, and just press 1. We can still have a conversation about anything we talked about today or anything you want to talk about. But as you can tell, I've kind of gotten on a kick about, you know, it It just it's amazing to me, and I've been been watching this big government solutions to everything uh, that have been coming down the pike from, you know, my fellow county commissioners that want to use government as the end all to city councils that want to use government as the end all to our state government, to folks in our federal government. Um, you know, people have to start realizing that limited government is really a good idea and a, and a concept that works. And, I got one real quick, if I can. Yeah. Um, state of Oregon is going to require, I can't remember what year it is, that 50% of all new cars sold be electric. Um, Elon Musk just came out on the first of this month and said that um, EVs will double the world's need for electricity. So kind of right along on your point about uh, environmental needs. Yeah, and, you know, I, I don't get me started on this. You know, one of the things people don't understand is, you know, how close our grid now is to capacity and the aging infrastructure of our electrical grid and our inability to really provide um, peaking power. Um, hydropower is nice, you know, and one of the things it has the ability to do is ramp up and ramp down to a certain extent for, for peak hour. Um, demand. But as we push that, uh, one of the things that, you know, these, quote, alternative energy sources create is they tend to be available when we don't need them. Solar power, you know, the maximum generation is noon. Well, that's not when the peak, we have peak demand. Peak demand first thing in the morning and, and late in the evening. And there's a dip that comes down. And, you, and, you know, so when you start putting solar power in, you actually don't help the system. You actually create the need to have more peaking power, which peaking power tends to be coal, oil, natural gas, because you can generate steam on demand, ramp it up quick, shut it down fast. So as as you add need, you know, for all these folks that are going to come home with their EV and plug it in during that evening peak power, when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing, what do you think is going to happen to our grid? You're, so we're going to end up having to build generation facilities that can peak, which means petroleum-fed generation facilities. Not to mention the fact that there's such a, a loss of efficiency between burning petroleum to generate electricity, transmitting it on electrical wires, then converting it back, you know, you know through your battery and your motor in your car to, to drive the wheels, there's a lot of efficiency losses in that whole system versus burning it directly in your engine in your car and driving the wheels directly from it. You know, w- you know which system's more efficient in, in the long run? So it just, yeah, getting back to my data, math, analysis thing that I started with about COVID. A lot of the things that people are doing to try and supposedly solve climate change are actually going to drive problems that are going to create more of the greenhouse gases they're trying to prevent. 
without it understanding that they're doing it because they don't get that there's nothing, you know, there's no such thing as a zero emission vehicle. No such thing. And, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll wrap the show up with that statement and challenge anyone to call me next week here on the Bozno Show and explain to me what a zero emission vehicle is. Bicycle has a carbon footprint. So we'll talk to you next week here on the Bose Nose Show, where we'll be coming back to you on Wednesday, 4 o'clock, from beautiful downtown Elmira. Hope you have a great week. Mm-hmm.